0: If you're in your Bible or training in your Bible, we'll be in Revelation chapter 11 verses 15 through 19. So we're going to end or we're going to finish up this chapter today. And you know we broke it because so this is the start of the seventh chapter or the the seventh trumpet. And so it was just a good break because, like I said in the beginning, this is kind of the beginning of the end. This is sort of the introduction to the last act essentially, to revelation, to God's kingdom coming and everything else. And so, it's titled The Grand Announcement, and so this is what it is. But So in 1932, between 1932 and 1934, Clyde Barrow and Bonnie Parker went on a crime spree. right? Bonnie and Clyde, the Barrow gang... Uh, Included killing, stealing cars, robbing gas stations, banks, grocery stores, and and escaping from a prison in Texas. And their crime spree expanded or spanned all the way from Texas to Oklahoma and Louisiana all the way to North Carolina. So they kind of zigzagged all the way around the country doing things. And while some of the society treated Bonnie and Clyde like celebrities, right, one website actually referred to them as depression-era Kardashians. Right, because the there was so much doom and gloom in the news that that everybody was so happy to read something other than doom and gloom. So they were they cared about sports, celebrities, and anybody who could kind of thumb their nose at the government, especially and especially banks, because people bl- kind of blamed the banks for a lot of the depression problems. So you know they said, well, hey, if you're robbing the bank, great. You know, they, some people would try to look at them as as Robin Hoods or you know, modern day Robin Hoods. But other people who were living in those areas, they were hit by them. They were terrified of meeting them or their gang in the local Piggly Wiggly. And if you've never been down south, the Piggly Wiggly is a grocery store. And they still have a few of them. Right? And, and, and they, did, they did not want to become one of their victims. Right? They were afraid of just a normal trip to the store would end up getting shot because they wanted to, you were in the way of what they were trying to accomplish. Right? and So the Depression era was causing poverty, it was unemployment, so everybody thought that uh, it was great that somebody was taking action, or at least they thought it were sticking it to the man, like I said. But it seemed like there was no end to this bad situation of being unemployed and also now having to fear for your life just to go get some milk. And it's interesting enough that the Texas Ranger Museum sheds some light on the facts. They say Bonnie and Clyde were not necessarily loved in their day. People were terrified of them because they had a tendency to start shooting if anything looked wrong. By the time they, so by the time Bonnie and Clyde had died, they killed at least 12 people, mostly law enforcement officers, but also some shopkeepers who, again, simply got in the way. And so they referred to them, actually, they said in today's terminology, they were serial serial killers. And this is kind of the day before uh, they had a most wanted list, but Bonnie and Clyde would have been up on the most wanted list with John Dillinger and some other people, you know Al Capone, those types of people. That was kind of their influence they had. And so the escape from a Texas prison in January of 1934 brought retired Texas Ranger Frank Hamer into the manhunt. And it was already busy, full of police from many states and the FBI or the precursor to the FBI and all that trying to chase these people. But they brought this one man to bear. And so the Texas Ranger, along with other lawmen uh, eventually in, in Louisiana, they they along with Bonnie and Clyde were set on this collision course to the last day where they ended up you know they ended up killing Bonnie and Clyde in a hail of gunfire. They said each each of them had been hit but with at least fifty bullets. I think by the time everything was said and done. Um, And it would decide, this collision course would decide if law and order would win out or if if Bonnie and Clyde's reign of terror and crime would continue on, right? And we see this because we can kind of push this a little further because in our world it seems like the world or the evil in the world just keeps going and going and going and it's it's almost like a snowball as it rolls down the hill. The snowball just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and you're just going to get crushed under the weight of it, right? And so we kind of ask the same thing that the witnesses ask in chapter 5, how long how long, oh Lord, do we have to put up with this? When are you going to the good, When are the good guys going to win? When's the guy with the white hat showing up into town to, to clean up the town? Right? I've been reading a lot of Westerns again, so that's why well, there's a lot of Western type comments here, probably in this one. But it, with this seventh trumpet looming, right, it seems like it's just going to be more bad news because there's already been six bad things from the trumpets, basically, for the, for the world or everybody else that experiences it. So we, we may think that the seventh trumpet is, is the same. But we're going to see that this trumpet, this last trumpet, actually is, is announcing the final act of God's plan. Right? So there's good news in this last trumpet. And so it's important. So let's go ahead and read uh, Re- Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. And Actually, I didn't put it on the screen, but... If you have your Bibles, go ahead and follow along. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. The 24 elders who were seated before God on their thrones fell face down and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, Lord God, the Almighty, who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, but your wrath has come The time has come for the dead to be judged and to give the reward to your servants and prophets, to the saints and to those who fear your name, both great and small. And the time has come to destroy those who destroy the earth. All right, so again, this is sort of of the wrap up, or this is what's going to foretell, foreshadow everything else that's going to happen in the next, the last few chapters. All right, so this is kind of the big synopsis of what's going to happen. So here's the main point of this is that we can rejoice. Because the kingdom of God is going to transform the world, right? The old world will pass away and it's going to become new. Now, the question is, where do you fit into that process? Where do you fit into the new world? Are you going to be destroyed, as it says, verse 18? I need to read verse 19 too, but let me read verse 19 again. Sorry, let me go back to 19. Then the temple of God in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. And there were flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder an earthquake and severe hail. All right, so that is the whole scene that we're going to see. And of course, anytime an earthquake is mentioned, there's something bad that's going to happen afterward because the earthquake foretells. So if you look at your uh, outline there on the back of your bulletin, right, it's really it's not about the kingdom. Right, it's not about the kingdom. It's about the king. Right, that's the important part. though. it's about the king who is coming. So the king is everlasting. The king is mighty. And the king conquers. And so we broke up the verses. That's what the numbers are in there, obviously. Um, so we can follow along. So the first part is that the seventh angel blew his trumpet. There were loud voices of heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our, of our Lord and Him his Christ. He shall reign forever and ever. And again, it's easy to get wrapped up in the kingdom because we like to see the kingdom. We want all that, everything to go away and have everything restored to what it was. But Again, and we can't stress this enough, the person we need to focus on, the who, is the king. The king makes the kingdom possible. And so he's still king no matter what happens. But see, in chapter 11, the scene shifts from, from John watching stuff that goes on on earth to seeing things that are happening back up in heaven again. Right? And so Revelation does this where he, he is kind of maybe looking down from heaven in down onto the earth from where he's at. And then he kind of shifts back up here to seeing what's going on and where he's at actually. Because he is still in heaven. He seems like he never leaves his place where he's at in heaven watching all these things happen. So he's kind of shifting his, his eyes or his focus. And so we're told the seventh angel blows his trumpet. But again, instead of woes or plagues, there's this great announcement that the kingdom has come. And so like Bonnie and Clyde, crime spree, evil will eventually end. Right? It can't go on forever. It will not. God does not allow evil to go on forever. So at some point it's going to stop. And so most people, though, don't enjoy living in or under evil. And the, and the ones who have given over their lives are the ones who do already have given over their lives to the evil one. So they don't know any better. But the people who fear God pray to him for it to end. And we hear the saints again ask, how long, how long are these things going to last? How long until your kingdom comes all the way and you vanquish the evil? And so in this seventh trumpet, we have the answer to the prayer, because in the Lord's prayer, one of our petitions, one of the petitions that Jesus says is to ask for your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So his will in heaven is that everybody knows he is the king, he is ruling everything, so it is going to eventually make its way to earth. It's his kingdom will come. We ask, your kingdom come, thy will be done. Right. That's what the prayer is, in the Lord's Prayer. And it can be argued that on earth as it is in heaven is the conclusive explanatory phrase of what that petition means. And so we see this happening here first, and then it, it trickles down, filters down to earth. And so heaven's announcement and celebration now focuses on the answer to that prayer and announces that in some new and obvious sense never before experienced that the coming of Christ and the establishment of his kingdom will be a fulfillment of the promised reign of the Son of David. In Psalm 2 and some other psalms, they're the Messianic psalms, they are predicting that the Son of David, that's who Jesus is because he is considered a son because he's further down the line, will take over the throne and even David will worship him. Because he is the king, he is the Messiah, because he's, he's also the son of God. And Jesus said as he came, he said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so with his death, life and death and resurrection, the kingdom is here. And yet it's not completed, it's not completely realized yet here. So Gregory Beale says that Jesus' life launched the fulfillment of the eschatology already, but not yet new creations reign. Right? We are waiting to see this thing for all the way through. It bestows grace through faith and resulting in a worldwide commission to the faithful to advance this new creational reign. And it results in judgment for the unbelieving unto the triune God's glory. So we, as a part of God's people, are told to go out and make disciples. We are told to tell people about becoming a new creation. Because that's part of the kingdom here, that we are made new. Paul tells it in several places. We are made new through Christ's blood. The old person falls away; the new person becomes just like so. In some sense, we are part; we are the kingdom in a sense, because we are made new. We are no longer beholden to the old selves. And so, this idea of this coming glory is the idea in verse fifteen, and this is the point of the whole thing: that it announces the everlasting kingdom. God didn't create the, wor- the world and then come back to it. He said, "Okay, there it is. It's good. It's running now. I got some other errands to run." I've got to go somewhere else. I'll be back in uh, 7,000 years or whatever. And he comes back for the final battle, right? No, he's, he's there watching, orchestrating everything that goes on. He's, he's aware he's limiting Satan's power. He's limiting all the problems that happen where things could be a lot worse than what they are. And so God's work, because we see this cycle, right? The Bible has the cycles, of God's revealing power and who he is to people. They don't listen. They have to be punished. They have to be exiled. They come back. They realize who he is. Okay, right? So there's these cycles that go through when you read the Bible. And so we see all these things going on. And so this is the final cycle, essentially. There's just no calendar attached to it. Sort of like, remember, 2012, December 21st, or whatever it was, the world was supposed to end according to the the Mayan calendar, because their calendar was also built on cycles. Our calendar is not built on cycles, but the Bible, the world, is built on cycles. So we don't have an end date for this, but we know it is coming. And also the seventh trumpet can also be linked to the story of Jericho, when on the seventh day the trumpets blew and the city walls fell. Right, so here we have these Old Testament tie-ins, where they had to walk around the, the walls, right, the circle, and they blew their trumpets, and they went and did the rest of their thing. But on the seventh day, because of God's power, the walls fell, the Israelites were able to take over Jericho. Because that was God's work. And so the Bible is clear, though, because this is all part of his everlasting plan. So here's a couple verses. So Isaiah 40:28. in case we don't know about, about God, he says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. I think we talked about it with Baal and some of the other gods that, you know, for Elijah, the story of Elijah with Baal, Baal could die, right? He died. That's why winter came, because they thought that Baal died and the other god took over and he had to be resurrected or brought back somehow. And every year this happened. So every year the god that they worship is dying. It doesn't make sense to worship somebody who's just like me. It doesn't make any sense to me. You need to worship God who is everlasting. He is, the crea- he is the creator of the earth. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't grow weary. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Because there had to be, for things to be created, there had to be a creator first. Daniel calls the one he meets in his book, The Ancient of Days. as a title. You don't live forever and create and control the universe if you're weak, right? You can only do those things if you are mighty. And so we move to the next part that the elders recognize the might and the power of God. They say, we give you thanks, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and you began to reign. So the elders in the throne room, again, we see them, they they recognize who God for who he is. He is the Lord God Almighty. He is the one we look to for things we need. We look to God to be saved. Right? He saves us because the song says, "He is mighty to save." He's the only one that can provide your salvation, your being snatched out or pulled away, separated from the wrath that is pending. All these other people that we talk—you can see in the back end of verse 18. And so this celestial proclamation of the coming of Christ's kingdom has a salutary effect on the 24 elders. Until this moment, they are pictured as seated on their thrones before God. They're just kind of watching everything going on. And all of a sudden, this announcement happens, and all of a sudden, they get down and start worshiping God. They abandon their thrones, one commentator says, and they fell on their faces and worship God. So it's interesting that the Greek word used for fell in, the Greek, in this verse is the same word that appears in chapter 11, verse 13, when it says, A tenth of the city fell. Right, so it's the same word. And so with this picture in mind, one can appreciate the sudden action of the 24 elders in abandoning their thrones to prostrate themselves before the God of the universe. Right, if you've ever seen a building get demolished, or especially if it's a you know, kind of a skyscraper-type building, where they blow it up from the bottom and it just tumbles down, just do-do-do-do-do. It's kind of that same thing, that's the same word that's being used here. The city walls fall, suddenly, boom, down, they're down. It's the same thing all of a sudden, they go from their chair to the floor, worshiping God. And so also the word translated from almighty has a sense of irresistible Power. He has an irresistible power to him. It's a word relatively empl- employed relatively seldom in classical Greek. So to me, that means that it's not something you use to describe everyday things, right? You can be strong, you can be mighty, you can be powerful, but you're not almighty. You don't have most people don't have an irresistible power to them, right? So this reference is not so much to God's activity. In creation as much as it is to his supremacy over all things. So, you know, if you if you have a boss or you you, you work on a team or or something like that, right? You can kind of know well who's in charge, who's the leader. And everybody will probably know who the who the boss is and who the leader is, right? And they're not always the same person. Right, Because you have other things. People can get stuff done without having to be the boss. And so this is what it is, is. Everybody knows that God is supreme over all things. He is in charge. And so that's the power, right? It's that respect, the people you're drawn to. Because you're like, I can follow that guy in the combat, no problem. Or a or, or woman, whatever it is. I can follow that person without, without any problems at all. Another time it's like, well... I'll do it because he said so. Right? And this is, this is the, the latter part of it, or the, or the former part. And so, this irresistible power, though, it captivates those of us who answer the call. We are drawn to him like moths from a flame, but yet we don't burn up. Right? When Moses was in the desert, he saw the burning bush. He couldn't resist it. He's like, What is this bush that doesn't burn up? I can't, I got to go look at it. Right? He could have kept walking, but he was drawn to this event, whatever it was. And so John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. John 12, 32, he says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Right? He is saving. His, his death fixes the world. And then Psalm 145, verse 18, it says, The Lord is near to all who call on him, to, to all who call on him in truth. So he's there. He is there because we want to call, because we recognize at some point that he's the only one that can do what we need to get done, and that is to be saved. It's not about getting a job, and that's important. We pray for the things we need, but what we really need is salvation. All of us need salvation. All of us need to be removed from God's anger, removed from God's wrath, and be shown his love and be beneficiaries of his grace. So Frank Hamer got the call to catch Bonnie and Clyde in the barrel gang because he was known to be capable of getting the job done, right? He was mighty in a sense, if you want to look at it that way. He, so the prison ward, the head of the prison system in Texas called him because he knew he could get it done. Right. A lot of other police officers were unsuccessful in bringing them to justice. But Frank was smart and capable. He looked for patterns. He knew, he knew that they always came home. No matter where they crisscrossed around, he said, they're always coming back here. And that happened to be their hometown, right around Dallas. So he staked out their houses. He developed contacts. He knew where they were headed next, which, was, which happened to be Bienville Parish in Louisiana. And so this final conflict was set in motion. And so the apostles were drawn to Christ, and they waited, and they watched, and they walked with him, they learned from him, they watched him perform these miracles, and they ate and drank with him on the last night of, of his life, before his trial and crucifixion. Right? They thought they had followed the right guy, they thought he was the Messiah, he was the one going to bring in the kingdom, thought it was going to just happen like that. And then that. But then unfortunately they had some questions after he was crucified and they died and put him in the tomb. All right. But then we know because they thought, well, maybe he wasn't as mighty as they had thought he was. But then their, their opinions changed again when he rose again three days later, conquering the grave. Right. Easter morning is what we celebrate because here he is. Jesus comes out of the out of the, the tomb and so verse 18 says, The nations were angry, but your wrath has come. The time has come for the dead to be judged and to give the reward to your servants and prophets. Your servants, the prophets, to the saints and to those who fear your name, both small and great. And the time has come to destroy those who destroy the earth. And so the elders song that they sing, it's like a commentary of time. The nations raged, but your wrath came. Right. So the nations have always been raging. Satan is always raging against God, right? We get some we're gonna get some background in chapter 12 of this. Chapter 12 is almost like a recap of the entire history between good and evil, essentially. Right? So this battle continues into the Garden of Eden because Satan was thrown out of heaven, shows up in the garden, tricks Eve, tricks Adam. And then we see the battle between the pharaohs, the Pharaoh and the male children. Because he wanted to get rid of the line, any, anybody in the line. But God preserved Moses in order to be able to free his people. Because right? Moses is a type of Christ. Right? He's, an, he's a typological, he's a type of Christ. He, he's like an, an example or a precursor. The battle stretched out across time within God's people because, because Satan had found a new attack plan. Because so I don't have to attack you from within, or from outside... I can get in this way and attack you from the inside, and we see that with Jezebel, we see that with some of their kings, where they just were happy to destroy themselves, and so God had to cleanse them and clean them out because because they became like he Satan became like yeast, getting in and affecting everybody and making everything rise too much, too bad. It was bad, evil, and in Jesus' time again, he went back to the same plan. He thought it worked before. So maybe it'll work again. He used Herod to act just like Pharaoh, essentially, to kill Jesus and all the newborns, everybody under two. Went back to the same plan. Why? Because Satan, he's only so smart. He only has enough, so much ability or ingenuity, right? He isn't very creative because he is really still a finite being. Now, he may be more powerful than us in a sense because they're angels and they, have, they can do different things. But he's not God. He's not as powerful as God. So he is limited as well. But God conquered death at the resurrection, and now we are awaiting the final battle. And so this final judgment we see, because in verse 19 it mentions the Ark of his covenant appeared in his temple, right? So we see this Ark, and we know that the Ark disappeared somewhere probably around maybe about Solomon's time. Now they think that maybe the Ethiopians have it. You know, there's, there's the Ethiopian church says claims that they have the Ark. It's in, it's in a building. They guard it. Nobody can go see it. So, maybe it will be. I don't know. But the ark makes its appearance again. Right? And so there's a picture of what the ark is thought to look like according to what it says in the Bible. And they kind of, you know, people kind of draw it out and they've made re- re- uh, reproductions. But the final judgment is going to take place at the beam of seat. So, on top of there is the beam of seat where the angels are. And so this ark represents not only the judgment, but also the seat of forgiveness. It's also referred to as the mercy seat. And it's God's presence with his people. And so there's also a theory that when you visualize, when you read Luke's text about the Easter story, the way he describes it, and there's a picture next, that... It represents the Ark, right? The tomb and everything else, the two angels, it represents, if you could look at it straight on, this is the only picture I could really find, if you're looking at the angels and everything else, it was representative of the Ark. Because Jesus is God's Word, and what did they carry around in the Ark? They carried around God's Word in the Ark, on the ta- those tablets that we talked about on Thursday. right? They carried this around, so here we have the living Word in the temple, in the, in the Ark, and now He's out, because He's living so what do we do with this, though? What do we do with this information? Because now we know these battles are going to go on, but when? That's always the key, right? When is this going to happen? Well, I don't know. And with Revelation, a lot of the stuff is I don't know. But what can we do in the meantime? So here's three things that we can do in the meantime. First is we need to continue to hope. We need to continue to hope. So first, Peter one thirteen says therefore with minds that are alert and fully sober set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when jesus christ has revealed is revealed at His coming so we keep hoping this is going to happen and of course we'll read the depending on how you how you see things playing out if we're going to be here for all this bad stuff or most of it or if we're gone and we just we're just watching you know a lot of people are probably hoping we're not here i say prepare for the worst I think we're going to be here by the, by the way it says, but again, it's not on the test, but we hope that we, this is going to happen. We know we have the hope, and it's not a, again, it's not this hope of, gee, I really hope I get a new bike for Christmas, and I hope my parents give it to me, it's, it's I know that this is going to be fulfilled, and I have trust in you, and we're going to do that in a minute, but I hope, that's the hope, it's, it's different. Of what we, than what we think. So then First Thessalonians 1, 3, Paul says, we remember before our God and, our, and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Why do we do this? Why are we Christians? Because I have trust in God. I have hope that this works. I have hope that Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, paid for my sins and has absolved me in front of God. So when we get to that point where the ark is, I go on the mercy side of the seat instead of the judgment side. If you're looking at it, if there's two halves. You know, everybody who's saved gets on the right. Everybody who's not gets on the left. For you guys. I did that right, okay. I did make sure I had the stage hands right, I guess. <clears throat> Right, but we have this because that's what it is. And if you don't know that, you can do it. If the Holy Spirit is prompting you to ask the question like what does this mean? Why do I care? Why should I care? How does it work? We know that his death paid for your penalty. It says in the Bible numerous times. And so we know we have this faith because God has placed that seed in your heart. It has to come out of the, it has to come out of the ground and flourish. But the world is not easy. We know there's a, there's a battle, right? The, the nations rage, they're angry. So we need the second thing we need to do is continue to fight or resist the enemy. So 2 Timothy 4:7, Paul tells Timothy, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Right? He was battling people, he was in jail more often than not after he became a Christian. Yeah, he was beaten. He had to be snuck out of cities, in a basket, all kinds of things. It would have been easy for him to go back to Judaism and just go, you guys do whatever you want. I don't like getting beat up. Right? And so it's easy to live that comfortable life. Right? We don't want to get beat up. We don't want to get abused by the world. Other, other people in the first century especially, they were losing business because you know, the cancel culture was alive then just as much as it is now. They said, oh, you're, you believe in Jesus? Oh, I'm not going to pay my money here. You, know, you don't come to this our temple anymore. Well, I'm not going to. I'm not going to um, sell you any goods for you to sh- st- sell in your store. So what am I going to sell now? You know those types. Of, those types of decisions were very real at that point. So it, it's it's just how people react to things they do or don't like, right? But Paul said, "I finished the race. I kept the faith. I didn't forsake God for comforts." And I think that's what we have gotten too comfortable with. Of saying, I'll be a Christian as long as it's comfortable. And I think that's where some people, some of us as the church at large are, are, are having experiencing this now. Where we're starting to get back into the, what was intended. And so we have, to be, we have to be comfortable, and I've said this before. You have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. That's the only way we get through life. That's the only way we can endure. And so Paul says in Ephesians 6... Verse 12, he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's why he instructs us to put on the full armor of God every day. Because every day you step out your door, there's attacks. Every time you're even in your house, there's attacks. When you get out of bed, when you open your eyes, you could have the potential to be attacked spiritually because... That's how Satan operates. And it's very real. And so Jacob wrestled with God, but he had been wrestling with a lot of others before this, and his name means supplanter or deceiver. And so after Jacob wrestled with God, he realized that I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. And so Jacob's name was later changed to Israel, as God said, you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And so today we wrestle with an unseen enemy. Satan and his demons are spirit beings, but very powerful ones too. And because of this, it is necessary to put on the whole armor of God so we can stand against the schemes of the devil. So we have to continue to fight no matter how hard, right? Hopefully this is a respite, coming here, getting rested, and you get a little R&R you know, from everything that goes on in your life in the week, and we go back out fully charged again. Because in that meantime, the last thing we need to do is continue to trust. We have to continue to trust. So Psalm 56, verse 3 and 4 says, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God I trust. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Right? And this is this is (laughs) Paul could have wrote that. You know, I think he probably think he quoted at some point, probably, especially the last part. In Psalm 37, 5. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. Right, He will act. He acted on your behalf at the cross of Calvary. For you to trust him, that he is who he says he is, because he is the Lord God Almighty. He is more than capable of saving you, because he's already done it. And so wrapping it up, right? Frank Hamer and his team brought to order, they brought order to this chaotic situation and they waged a quick war against the barrel gang right so they caught them in a they kind of trapped them or they kind of set up a, a way to to catch the barrel gang and then of course Bonnie and Clyde wasn't going down easy they weren't going down easy so they a shootout was the only thing that could happen really and so they they killed both of them right but in today's passage right this is this is the beginning of the end and how God planned out his final stages to bring about his kingdom into existence and restore the perfect order to his world. All right, that's what it's all about. If you look at it, it's almost a pyramid. You know, we start at Genesis and everything's perfect. And then we have all the Bible stuff that goes on. We, in the middle you have Jesus and it starts to flip it and it comes back down to that point. And so the beginning of Genesis and the end of Revelation are pretty much the same point. It's restoral of perfection and restoral of worshiping God and having man be there with God because that was ruined by Satan right we see Satan jump in the ver- in chapter 3 of Genesis but all of this when you read the whole book what you get is the sense of power and sovereignty that God has over his creation and over us so he controls all of this and so we must hold fast to God in this covenant that he has made with us because he's the one that will not fail the covenant so if you don't know or do want more, know maybe you have other questions to try to talk to people about what this means and what the new covenant means for them. You can we can talk later or you know, we can I can point you to some resources, right? So as we go out this week, think about this and, and try to trust and hope and keep fighting. So let's go as we do our transition here. Right, right, we'll go ahead and close our Bibles up. We have our last two songs as well. So think about that. Think about how we can trust God more, even though it's difficult.